Hello and welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. My name is Claire Sudbury, my pronouns are she and her, and I am a lead engineer at Made Tech. Sometime in 2020, I went to an XP Manchester session where my ex-colleague Neil Vass was raving about the book Team Topologies. Ever since then, I've really wanted to find out more about it. So on Monday, the 30th of August, 2021, I got my wish and I had a good long chat with the book's co-author, Matthew Skelton. Hello, Matthew. Hi, it's good to be here. It's great to have you. So Matthew Skelton is the co-author of the book Team Topologies, and that's mainly what we're going to be talking about today. But as always, I'm going to start by asking, who in this industry are you inspired by? It's quite a nice question. There's so many good people working in software. And when I thought through it, it's people who pursue their work through a sense of being a practitioner, so actually doing the work, or maybe through a desire to fight some kind of injustice as well. For me, that ends up being important. So there's some specific people I found inspiring. Ruth Mallon, she's basically been tireless on her work around software architecture, and she ended up writing the foreword to the Team Topologies book. So we're super happy about that. People like Claire Sutcliffe, MBE, because she founded Code Club ages ago, possibly something like 15 years ago, and grew that in the UK and grew it worldwide to like 120 countries, something. And then that was taken on by a Raspberry Pi Foundation. And now Claire does work in technology education. So super inspiring to see that kind of growth and, and dedication to something which doesn't immediately have a kind of big revenue stream. Yeah. But it's, she's had a massive impact on, on technology education. Just incredible. I've long admired Daniel Turhorse North, who has been a kind of legend in, in software development and thinking for, well, decades, really. But he's so relentlessly positive, yeah. as well as being an amazing technologist. That's super inspiring. And I think Gene Kim as well from IT Revolution, the publishers of Team Spoldy's book, but also the, the people who run the Devil's Enterprise Summit. He's kind of got basically endless energy and a kind of enthusiasm for making large enterprises better at software delivery and IT in general. Those four specific people, but really anyone kind of working in IT who's fighting the kind of endemic misogyny and racism and other kind of barriers put in place and held in place by, well, Often very mediocre people, usually men, but it's very obvious in the tech sector that there's, there's lots of people who are doing some amazing work and, and, and being very uh, vocal about it and, you know, slowly making some important changes. So it's good to see. Yeah. And it's inspiring. Yeah. So Dan's actually an upcoming guest. We're going to be speaking to Dan very soon. Ah. And Ruth is very much on my hit list. Yeah, Ruth's amazing. And I will have to look up the other two. So fantastic. Thank you. So... How did you find yourself specialising in team topologies? Well, I suppose it goes back to the very start of my career. I think there's a few threads that go back to 20 years. In my very first job, I was working in a company that was building brain scanning machines. So my role there was writing what's called desktop software to take the three-dimensional image data and then allowing the person operating the machine to kind of uh, take virtual slices through a brain scan and so manipulate the scan on screen in, in real time. And... There were four or five of us working on, on the software at that point. And at that point, we didn't even have version control. So I introduced version control into the company. Wow. But it was clear that the way in which we were kind of interacting at some point was causing problems for how we were doing the software development. And so I was kind of interested to try and explore solutions even at that point. That was kind of 20 years ago. That's before kind of modern version control systems were in place. And this is sort of before a lot of the kind of modern agile practices were sort of 
adopted. So I guess I can trace a bit of a thread back for sort of a couple of decades. But the recent work on teen deportees really started for me in 2013, when I wrote a blog post on my, on my blog, exploring different kinds of team boundaries and, and relationships in the context of what was then called DevOps. In other words, the relationship between development teams and operations teams and how they could be more effective working together. That's what DevOps meant at that point. It means something different now. And the patterns, there's a series of Venn diagrams, basically, showing kind of separate responsibility or some kind of overlap, implying some kind of collaboration. And these ended up being really useful. So companies like Netflix use these to think about the, the shape of their teams. Companies like Condé Nast International, a big publishing house. And like hundreds or even thousands of other companies around the world use these DevOps team topologies, we called them then, that we published on our website back in, I think, 2014, 2015. And it helped people think through different responsibility boundaries and different options for helping organizations to become effective at software delivery. And also some anti-patterns as well, some things to avoid. Now, as we kind of developed those ideas and the thinking and the implications around it, it became clear that something more was needed and that kind of static responsibility boundaries were kind of a useful starting point for a conversation, but not really the only thing you need to think about. And so we explored more and more things. I did more and more talks, brought in more and more thinking and, and examples from people tackling some of these things at, at interesting scale and in interesting ways. And then together with Manuel, my co-author, um, who we've been working together for the past few years on, on, on lots of different client work for companies in, in different parts of the world. And so we came together and said, well, let's try and pitch a book. So we pitched the book to Gene Kim's publishing company. And they said, yes, which is great. And it turns out that they've got the ideal kind of audience for this kind of book. It came at the right time, bringing together the right kind of ideas around architecture and Conway's law, team cognitive load, things like this. Many of these ideas have been kind of floating around. Uh, and we were the ones to bring them together. But we also did introduce some uh, entirely novel concepts too, particularly the use of the concept around team cognitive load, which is an innovation. And we introduced things around uh, kind of adaptive organizations, specifically team interaction mode. They're thinking about the ways in which teams interact as a first-class thing, helping organizations to have better conversations about what they want to build and how and when. So I guess it was kind of an evolutionary process. I was I did a master's in neuroscience, so I'm interested in how the brain works at a biological level, but also at a kind of psychological level. And it's still a strong interest for me to look at this whole kind of thing of software development through the lens of not just the technology, but also the people and the teams and the grouping and the organization as a whole. And so that's how we got to Teams Body, is it basically? Right. Okay. There were loads of things you mentioned there that now I want to know more about. There was just an aside, but uh, I, I am interested. You mentioned how the meaning of DevOps has changed. And these days, I find myself not actually clear what people mean when they say DevOps. How do you think those meanings have changed? It's a good question. I mean, to some extent, the ship has sailed, really. Um, we have to go with the meaning that is, that is very vague now. But back then, lots of organizations had two separate uh, groups. One kind of what you might call development, software development building applications, another group called operations running things. Yeah. So you would kind of hand over that software into to a separate team that runs things. To increasingly, that model of hand building something and then running it as two separate things it is becoming less and less relevant. Um, DevOps these days seems to mean kind of automated infrastructure, or for some people it means the operational side of development, which is a hugely restricted view of what DevOps really ought to be, which is kind of more like a set of collaboration patterns or something. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I still think of it as meaning the idea of doing dev and ops all in one team, that DevOps 
comes together and people collaborate to do dev and ops rather than there being some kind of divide and some wall that things get thrown over. But I have noticed that people use it differently and I find myself getting confused. So I think it's interesting to draw that distinction. The other thing that you mentioned uh, was Conway's Law. And it's probably worth explaining what Conway's Law is for people and if you're able to do that and maybe how it's relevant to your work. Yeah. So in 1968, Mel Conway, who had experience working in the U.S. military and also for some large U.S. computing corporations, wrote and published a paper. The name of the paper was How Do Committees Invent? And he was looking at the relationship between the communication pathways inside organizations and the likely systems that end up being built. And so this was a very early sort of socio-technical view on kind of the emerging practice of software at the time. In 1968, you know, software was a relatively new thing, but it was clear to some people, including Mel Conway, that there was some interesting dynamic happening here. And effectively, there's a mirroring, a mirror effect between the communication pathways in the organization and the likely architecture of the thing that we're going to build. Mm-hmm. It's actually not a mirroring between the team structure and the architecture. It's actually about the communication pathways that exist inside the organization. And interestingly, In the last sort of 15 years or so, there's been some research into lots of different disciplines, including software, but also aerospace, car manufacture, jet engine design, and some similar patterns have emerged there as well. If if there's a mismatch between the team or group communication and the system architecture, then you'll end up getting problems across that interface, across that boundary. Mm. So it seems like there's some sort of natural force or emergent force at work in these kind of contexts where you've got groups of people building stuff what some people call a homomorphic force, in other words, it it tries to make things self-similar, exists. Now, you can choose to ignore it, or you can choose to work with it. It's not like a a, a law like gravity, where the vast majority of the time, if you're on Earth at least, then that gravity will exist. Mm -hmm. It's more of a a kind of tendency that there's something pulling in that direction. And the, the, the question for organizations is, do you want to spend time and effort fighting against this force? Mm-hmm. Or do you kind of want to align things so that you're taking advantage of this kind of natural force? Yeah. And obviously, sensible organizations are, are avoiding fighting against this kind of mirroring effect that tends to happen. Can you give an example of a communication pathway that, that might frequently get reproduced in the architecture of software? Well, the classic one is if you have a single database administration team that's responsible for doing all the database changes in the organization then you would typically end up with a single shared database mm-hmm. because it's in the interest of that single team to optimize for their own use yeah, and, and then put all that stuff in the same database so they can manage it better. And so then you've got a mirroring between the social side and the technical side there. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you had some sort of data capability inside multiple teams, you might have independent data stores instead. So it's, it's that kind of thing. I mean, it, it, there's aspects to it around different tooling as well. If you have one tool for tracking bugs in software that's just for developers and a separate tool for tracking bugs in software that is aimed at operations people, then you'll end up with a kind of harsh divide across those two tools, which is something similar mm-hmm. because you're not getting communication down. Yeah. So there's multiple angles to how this plays out in an organization, which are not necessarily immediately obvious to to lots of people. But being aware that there is this mirroring happening that relates to how the communication works is by no means the only design concern, really. There's lots of other design concerns. But if you've completely ignored this mirroring tendency, then you're you're likely to be putting effort and, and kind of fighting against this tendency, which is just waste, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So I think I'd quite like to explore that a bit more now that we're talking about it, because now I'm thinking about what people sometimes refer to as the inverse Conway manoeuvre. 
which is an attempt to use Conway's law to your advantage. Is that something you're able to talk about? Sure. So the idea is that if we take on board this idea of the communication pathways in the organization end up being mirrored in, in the software architecture, then the question is, well, hey, if we want to get out of this problem, why don't we try and work out what our ideal software architecture would be or the kind of software architecture that we want? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in the context of a, a kind of modern software, that is an architecture that allows for fast flow of change that has some asynchronous elements to it. So it's not all kind of coming off one big relational, immediately synchronous data store. There's some kind of asynchronous elements there as well, messaging and what have you. Yeah. Then there is a kind of architecture that we know scales really, really well. Some people call it reactive, whatever. It's relatively well known. It's been well known since the 60s, what kind of architecture this is. Mm-hmm. So we start with this architecture, which we know is going to help the scale. And then... We change the teams and the communication pathways between teams to reflect the architecture that we want. That's the inverse common maneuver. So in other words, we're changing our organization to give us a better chance of achieving this architecture that we know is going to be effective. It doesn't guarantee that we're going to be able to build that, but at least we're not fighting against this mirroring tendency. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Okay, so uh, I know in your book you identify four types of team. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Before I do, I want to say why we did this. Mm. So we, in our work, Manuel and I, my co-author and I, what we saw is that so many people in organizations, they were demoralized, they were confused, they felt like they were wasting time. There are lots of negatives about how people felt when they were inside teams inside lots of organizations. And one of the reasons we found behind that was that people didn't really know what type of team they were in. They didn't really have a sense of kind of purpose or definition. The teams are very nebulous. They were not well-defined. Mm. And sometimes managers would say, hey, just do this piece of work, or hey, just do this, or can you take on this other responsibility? Or maybe you just need to take some responsibility for this database. Yeah. And so on and so on. It was a huge lack of clarity in lots of organizations about kind of teams, the size of teams, the purpose, the remit, the skills, whatever. And so what we wanted to do was to try and come up with the smallest number of different types of team that would then increase the clarity for people in the teams and outside the teams to help have better conversations about what we're doing. So that's when we ended up coming up with the four types of team that we talk about in the book. If your context is a fast flow of change, then we think that these four types of teams are the only ones that are needed. And we also think that it's valuable to map and kind of convert existing teams into one of these four types. Mm. The starting point is what we call a stream aligned team a team aligned to the stream of change. And this typically could be a value stream or it could be a product or it could be um, a government service. So like a citizen-focused service, for example, or it could be aligned to a user journey. We talk to different ways of finding effective stream alignment uh, in our book. Yeah. But our starting point is what you'd call a business domain. So if we do find a stream of change that's relevant to the business and relevant to an end user, crucially, then we find a team around part of that flow of change And that team has all the skills they need to build, test, deploy, and run that software in the live environment, in production. So this might be what you call a DevOps team. Yeah. In other words, end-to-end, they're doing development and operations, if you like. They're doing all the bits that need to happen for that that service. Mm -hmm. And the reason we do that is because one of the greatest sources of waste or slowdown in an organization is handing off from one team to another. So because this team has end-to-end responsibility, we are not handing off this work to anyone else. It's entirely within this team. So there's a nice fast flow of change towards production. But because they're responsible for running that thing in production, they also have a detailed understanding of how that thing is actually running. They're very close to the users. They get feedback from users, maybe directly. They also get telemetry and logs and metrics and things from the live environment back into their team so they can improve it really, really quickly. 
So that sets things up for a very, very rapid cycle time. I mean, Amazon have been running their teams like this for nearly 20 years. And clearly, it's not prevented Amazon from growing to a massive scale. Yeah. We can at least say that it's not prevented them, and it probably has been part of the success. And this is a kind of foundational starting point. These teams need to be decoupled from each other. We need to find ways to have multiple separate streams of change. Yeah. Otherwise, we're waiting on other teams all the time. We want to avoid these kind of blocking changes. It's also worth saying that the size of a team is actually effectively limited. If you think about sports, I've only found one sport so far in the world that has more than 15 people on the field, Mm. which is uh, Aussie rules football. Apparently, there's 18 people. Pretty much every other sport has 15 or fewer people. And this speaks to some trust boundaries, effectively. So as humans, there are different groupings and different kinds of trust that can happen within different groupings. There's a trust boundary which seems roughly around 15 people, which is why typically sports teams don't grow beyond about 15. There's another boundary somewhere around kind of five to eight people. Mm. There's a further boundary around about 50 people, another boundary around about 150 people, um, and so on. The military, different militaries around the world, have discovered these boundaries over the course of many hundreds and thousands of years, of course. And so that's why you have things like kind of units and troops and squadrons and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. They've discovered the, the effective size of these things. And when we can look at that and inform the likely point at which trust is going to be less effective in, di- in different parts of our organization. Mm-hmm. And yet loads of organizations just continue to add more and more people to the same grouping and expect things to be the same. And that's where you get so many problems. Yeah. I wonder whether there's some network theory in there, you know, that the, the more people you have, the more lines of communication you have. And actually just adding one more person to a group has a massive impact on the possible number of connections between people. And it, it grows exponentially. Well, that's, that's one reason why we wanted to come up with a, a team-based approach, because a team-based approach cuts down by an order of magnitude the number of different lines of communication. Mm-hmm. If you start with the team as a as central kind of unit of work or the the central kind of grouping size rather than the individual, then it significantly simplifies by at least an order of magnitude, if not more, the number of different kind of lines of communication. So that was another driver for us to think about these four different team types. So our streamlined team has got a limit. For most organizations, it's probably a limit of about eight people. Some organizations with very high trust might be able to have up to 15 people in a single grouping. But typically speaking, it's unlikely that your organization has high trust. If you're in that kind of organization with high trust, that's great. Go for it. If you can make it work. But even then, a grouping, a single team of 15 people might end up internally feeling like two sub-teams anyway. Yeah. But that could work. But as a starting point, it's like just expect a single team to be kind of no more than about eight people. It's quite small. Yeah. But what we're aiming for, we want high trust because we want to be able to make decisions very quickly. We want to be able to have full context and trust the other people inside our organization. We're not worried about what they're doing. We trust that they are writing the code and testing the code and specifying it and making changes in production in the way that is best for the customer, but in a way which is not damaging for the team. So crucially, there's a limit on the size of the software that a streamlined team like that can build. Mm. Because you can't just keep adding people. And so you've got got eight people. They can work on a system, on a service. Let's say some kind of uh, government service for registering citizens for some new medical update service or something like this for receiving a medical alert or something like this. Something to do with like like a pandemic like we've been through recently. And people can sign up and they can do various things, whatever. But that team of eight people cannot keep growing that service indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, the complexity or the, the amount of things they need to think about when they're building that thing will become too large. And at that point, they'll slow down, they'll have less trust, they'll be able to do things less quickly. And therefore, it works against the flow of change. 
So a key design principle in team topologies is we have team-sized software. Team-sized software becomes an absolutely, for us, a fundamental architectural principle that we need to be designing for because we want a fast flow of change. We want to maintain high trust inside teams because that gives them context and, and awareness about the users and awareness about the software itself and so on and so on. We cannot just let the software grow indefinitely. So at some point, we either have to split the software in two, maybe two equal sizes, maybe two unequal sizes, whatever, ideally along domain lines, but it could be along a different line. Or we find some other way of reducing what we call the extraneous team cognitive load on that team. Yeah. Could be through training. It could be through different set of skills, fine, that might get us a little bit further. Or it might be through removing some of the responsibility from that team and putting that responsibility elsewhere. And that is where the other three team types come in. Ah, okay. I was, I was waiting for that. While I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm quite choosy about who I'll work for. Made Tech are software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work almost exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people. They've got such passion for making a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech. That's M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. We have free books available on our website at madetech.com slash resources slash books. And we're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. If you go to madetech.com slash careers, you can find out more about that. So a quick reminder that before the break, we were talking about how larger teams and larger chunks of software slow people down. So the second team type is called enabling team. The enabling team does not own any software itself, does not build any software itself. Mm -hmm. A team of experts could be multidisciplinary, could be single discipline. And the enabling team helps streamline teams to overcome capability gaps, to increase their knowledge in a particular area to migrate from one thing to another and so on, to adopt new practices. Yeah. And the enabling team will work with that streamlined team for a short period of time, maybe days or weeks, but not months or certainly not years. And so that the enabling team never becomes a kind of dependency, never becomes a crutch for the streamlined team. Yeah. And then the enabling team will move on to another streamlined team and another one and another one and so on throughout the organization, cycling around. The enabling team also detects common and repeating problems within multiple streamlined teams. They'll detect... We've now had nine out of 10 of these teams have the same problem around database migration or around machine learning. We need to do something inside the organization fundamentally so that we build a new machine learning capability or we make it easier for these teams to access some kind of machine learning computation thing, whatever. So it's a very distinct, different kind of team, an opening team. It has a, has a temporary relationship with other teams and it's focused specifically on helping the streamlined teams to improve their flow of change effectively, safely. The third type of team is called a complicated subsystem. Mm -hmm. And this is where if there's some aspect of the work that a streamlined team would be doing that is too involved, needs really, really hyper-specialist skills, like something to do with you know financial trading, something to do with video processing, typically where a lot of complicated mathematics or kind of unusual mathematics is involved, we are seeing, for example, that some of the machine learning stuff can work quite well as a complicated subsystem, but not always. Yeah, I was thinking about that. 
The key driver is thinking, is it reasonable to find the skills inside a streamlined team? And or would it be increasing the cognitive load on the streamlined team too much to ask them to take on this aspect of this computation? And if the answer is yes, basically, then we might bring it into a complicated subsystem team because that might be the right thing to do. But we're always driving that decision through the lens of a fast flow of change and limiting the, the extraneous cognitive load on the streamlined team. It's through those lenses that we do that. We don't just create a complicated subsystem just because it's a nice little techie library that we can write, <laughs> which has been the approach in the past. Yeah. I imagine there might also be a danger there that the people in the stream aligned team will be excited by something like machine learning and will see that as a, a new skill that they would be interested in learning. And if you keep taking all that stuff away from them, then there can be a kind of dissatisfaction that arises that your making is only focus on this one thing and you keep taking the interesting stuff away from us. Well, I mean, if, if people have got that opinion, then they're free to go to another team. The, the focus should be on a fast flow of change. That's what we're trying to optimize for. We're not, definitely not trying to optimize for people's uh, CVs. We're not trying to optimize for keeping things interesting. We keep optimizing for a fast flow of change in the systems that we're building. Okay. So that we can continue to adapt and meet customer needs at the highest speed possible effectively, but still do it in a way that's compliant and secure. Because the danger in the past has been that lots of technology teams have just got involved in some really interesting technology, but A, it's not needed. And B, particularly now, with the speed of change of technology, there's a new cloud version, a new cloud provider or a new SaaS you know, software as a service that's available that's doing exactly that thing. Yes. There's a lot of machine learning as a service now. Yeah, yeah. Don't reinvent the wheel. Well, don't reinvent the wheel, but more specifically, use things like worldly mapping mm -hmm. to look outside the organization, at the ecosystem, and expect that there's going to be a SaaS version of something around this product coming out in about 18 months, or even less in six months. Mm -hmm. And it's because of this speed of change, because we've got, we've got this kind of inflection in the abilities from software that come about through cloud computing and through other things like this. But that requires quite a radically different approach to software development compared to certainly 10 and definitely 20 years ago, mm -hmm. where you could assume that basically you writing all your software in one language, you had a single database, you're deploying this stuff onto servers, that you controlled, and the world was significantly simpler in that respect. And yet the dynamics now have to include what some people call FinOps or financial operations, thinking about the relationship between software and the financial aspect and thinking about software and the, the changing technology ecosystem. If you want to be successful, your kind of roadmap and plans and, and, and the way that you hire people, the kind of skills and mentality that you hire for, has to be set up so that you exactly are expecting to replace your internal stuff with things that you pull in from the outside on an increasing frequency. Mm. That relates to the final of the four team types, which is what we call platform team, which is really not a team type at all. It's more of a grouping. And again, the, the platform only should exist if it helps to accelerate the flow of change in teams that use the platform and reduces the extraneous cognitive load on the teams that use it as well. Yeah, That's its only purpose. It's not about sharing licenses. It's not about aggregating services. It's a very different way of looking at what we ended up calling a platform. I don't really like the word, but its purpose is purely around accelerating the flow of change and, and reducing cognitive load. And inside this platform, you should expect people who, yes, they might be specialists in, in doing something to do with machine learning, but the product owner around that machine learning capability is looking to the cloud and going, hey, folks, don't invest too much time in this. We're just going to buy this thing from Microsoft or from Google in six months' time. Mm -hmm. So to keeping the whole organization nimble, Avoiding investing in too many things which are of secondary importance to the organization's mission. Yes, building the things that are core, building the things that, 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 that differentiate intellectual property, but not wasting time on stuff which is just 
kind of heavy lifting and infrastructure kind of grunt work or will be grunt work in about a year's time. Mm. It's the speed of evolution in the technology space that means that we have to think differently about how when we build something and also set up the dynamic internally so that we're expecting to get rid of stuff that we've built. And that's a big ask, but it's the route to business agility rather than being lumbered with a whole lot of internal stuff, which is now basically no better or probably worse than what's available uh, on the open market. Interesting. So you're not necessarily seeing the platform team as being a team that is building a platform. Is it more that they're monitoring the technologies that are being built and kind of keeping an eye on what's on the horizon and thinking about what's going to be temporary and how you can make that work? That's a nice way of putting it. So from a team to policy perspective, a platform can be literally, and I mean literally, a wiki page that lists 10, 20 different services that uh, teams should use, and those services are all built outside of this organization. The platform team may not build anything at all. Mm -hmm. They might write absolutely no code at all, apart from some stuff to test things. And what they've done is curated an experience for those streamlined teams to enable them to use things in a way which, which actually works really, really well. Yeah. And I mean that literally. A platform team is absolutely not about writing loads of code. It's not about building loads of stuff internally. It's about shaping an experience for the streamlined teams by reducing their cognitive load, by accelerating delivery of software safely. Most organizations will end up building some stuff themselves, but the aim is always to build the smallest amount possible. The interesting thing that occurs to me is that in building software, in my experience, the biggest pain points are generally in the integrations. So it's the integration points with third-party products that can create a lot of complexity. And it, absolutely, I agree with you that it, it's not helpful to build things that already exist, particularly if it's not a differentiator for your organization. It absolutely makes sense to use things that other people have already built. But every time you do that, you create a new integration point. So for me, I think one of the jobs of a platform team is partly to think really carefully how to minimize the pain of integration. Yes. You're going to get that irrespective of whether the software was built internally or externally. It's still got an integration point. Sometimes a good platform would abstract exactly where that service is being provided from. It shouldn't really matter for those engineers using the eventual services, whether it's actually developed in-house or whether it's external. And that's, you know, to some extent, that's a good thing. Yeah. So you can swap it in and swap it out later. I think that's probably where you come to the really important considerations when choosing third-party products. So one of the reasons it can be painful is if, for instance, a third party does not have good hygiene on their APIs and they don't provide good upgrade paths, they don't have good version control, they don't provide good visibility of upcoming changes, all of those things can create a lot of pain if you're integrating against something where you suddenly lose an endpoint, for instance. So having some kind of confidence that you will be able to move fast because the people on the other end of that interface are also able to move fast and able to provide a good experience. So that kind of engineering quality and, and developer experience becomes a fundamental decision criteria for, for whether you should go with that provider in the first place. Mm. And any signals coming from that provider where, where, which suggests that they've got version control wrong or they don't do API version properly, just run a mile and go with someone else because it's going to really hurt things. The really key point here is that for us, the internal platform is optional. And that sounds strange to some people. But what it means is that streamlined teams have the option of building safe, compliant services themselves. Mm -hmm. They have the option of building their, entirely their own infrastructure, entirely their own machine learning. If the product which is funding that streamlined team 
has the need to be independent and has the need to use something which is not yet provided internally, or maybe for which there's no plan to provide internally, then that streamlined team will have to build it themselves or will have to find uh, some other way of doing it. And that's a good dynamic. The idea of teams being forced to use a centralized platform is just one of the worst sort of anti-innovations from the 1990s. And the dynamic should be that the internal platform seeks input from the streamlined teams as kind of quasi-customers and tries to make the developer experience so good that internal teams would like to use that internal platform because it's so good. Yes. That was the right dynamic, but they should never be forced to do it because there'll always be some team that has a need outside of that. Yeah. And it's also a great opportunity to separate the compliance criteria from the default implementation of the platform so that everyone can see how to write compliant, secure systems, code. And hey, look, here's a nice, really great default implementation in this internal platform. Feel free to use this. We'll help you get onboarded. This is your quick route to being safe and compliant. Mm -hmm. But if you have some other need, here's what you need to do. Yeah. And then it allows the product to make the right kind of investment decision. Yeah. Fantastic. Wow. I've just noticed the time. I can't believe it, that it's gone so fast. <laughs> I, there was a bunch of other stuff I was going to ask you, but there, there's no time, so I'm not going to. So instead, I'm going to go straight on to the questions that I ask all of my guests. The first one is just uh, for fun, really. Tell me one thing about you that's true and one thing about you that's not true. So I once walked 260 miles okay. along the Pennine Way in, in England. Well, from England into Scotland. Yeah. And I used hiking books that were three sizes too big. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Which was pretty painful. Yeah. But it was amazing. We did it in 16 days. Wow. One thing is I practice my trumpet for two hours each day. Very good. I'm very impressed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. The next thing, because we like to end on a high, what is the best thing that's happened to you in the last month or so? And it can be either work-related or non-work-related. So I have recently persuaded an amazing person to join my company as an employee. Mm. She'll actually be the first employee, excluding me. So I'm super excited about that. I'm really looking forward to working with her. I think it's really going to transform what I've been doing and, and how I'm doing it. I'm going to get so many new insights and opportunities and things with this person. So that's um, from a work perspective, that's super exciting. Fantastic. Which makes me then want to ask, well, what is your company? What does your company do? So my company is Conflux, and as you probably imagine, a significant chunk of the work that we do is around team topologies. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, not not entirely. We've been doing a lot of work around reliability over the last last eighteen months. And what's interesting is the relationship between software reliability and kind of decoupling that we talk about in team topologies. Yes. And I hadn't kind of realised that when I was writing the book. So we're working with an organisation in the telecom sector with hundreds and hundreds of teams, mm. and we've been developing techniques to work across lots of these teams and reach. 50, 150 people uh, at a time Wow! doing workshops and things like this. Yeah. And so it's been interesting to see this overlap between the reliability stuff that, that I've, I've been working on for, for nearly 10 years Yeah. and the team topologies and through the kind of decoupling and architectural and organizational patterns that actually make organizations more reliable and more resilient. So that's where we're going with, uh, that's where we're going with conflicts. Mm, okay. The very last thing is where can people find you and do you have anything that you want to plug? Thank you. Yeah. So just find me online. Go to matthewskelton.net and you'll find us at confluxhq.com. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and so on as well. We have a new video course on our Team Topologies Academy. It's called Platform as a Product. And we'll expand a lot on some of the ideas we've been uh, talking about today uh, around platforms and, and some of the dynamics there. 
So if you go to academy.teamtopology.com, I think there's still at the moment, there's still a discount for early signups and there's group discounts as well for people who want to send lots of people. It's probably worth me saying that the reason I wanted to interview in the first place was because a colleague of mine, Neil Vass, recommended both your book and one of your training courses. Ah, thanks, Neil. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Claire. As always, to help you digest what you've just heard, I'm going to attempt to summarise it. The idea of team topologies originally came from exploring the relationship between development teams and operations teams and how they could be more effective working together. Matthew and Manuel started out by thinking about responsibility boundaries. And then they started to think about software architecture, Conway's law, team cognitive load, and adaptive organizations, specifically team interaction mode. Ultimately, what they're talking about is helping organizations to have better conversations about how teams interact. So Matthew and his co-author, Manuel Pace, have come up with four types of team. There's the stream-aligned team, which I guess is the more traditional software development team dedicated to building, testing, deploying, and running software in a live environment. It's important that they have end-to-end -end responsibility for the deployment of their products to maximize the flow of change. Then there's the enabling team. This is a team of experts helping the stream-aligned teams to overcome capability gaps. Then there's the complicated subsystem. These are people that are handling some aspect of the work that the stream-aligned team needs hyper-specialist skills for. And finally, there's the platform team, which isn't really a team, it's more of a grouping and should only exist if it helps to accelerate the flow of change in the teams that use the platform. They shouldn't be wasting time on stuff which will be grunt work in about a year's time, but they should be curating an experience for those stream-aligned teams to enable them to work effectively. Okay, that's not all. Stick around for extra content. Hi, I'm Jack, Made Tech's Events Coordinator. Now, every other episode, this last short segment will be dedicated to the hack of the month, where one of our colleagues, and in the future, our listeners, will share a life or a work hack. This month's hack comes from me, on the benefits of taking cold showers. Now, this is something I discovered a while back, and is part of something called the Wim Hof Method that teaches that by incorporating cold showers into your day-to-day -day life, you can reap a wealth of benefits. For me personally, it helps with dealing with stress and anxiety. Regularly taking cold showers introduces a small amount of stress on your body, which leads to a process called hardening. Now, it's almost like a form of weightlifting for dealing with stress. By incorporating a degree of controlled stress in a controlled environment, it helps to prepare the body's reaction when faced with day-to-day -day stress and anxiety. Now, I know what you're thinking, that a cold shower replacing a morning hot one would be more stressful. I can assure you that nobody is expecting you to start diving into any ice baths anytime soon. Like weight training, starting small with 30 seconds at the end of a regular shower and focusing on your breathing is more than enough to build on. Now, if any of our listeners fancy giving it a try, please let us know how you found the experience. Working in the public sector means that at Maytech, we really care about making a difference. 
So for this final Making Life Better segment, myself and my colleagues will be sharing suggestions for small things we can do to make the world a better place. This week's piece of advice comes from our head of marketing, Lara Plaga, who has some advice on the power of food in bringing people together. Lara, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Throughout my life, I've realized that whenever you're struggling to bond with people, food always helps. Things such as eating together makes it much easier to create a deeper connection with people. I personally love cooking, so whenever I was at uni or moved somewhere new and uh, was struggling to create connections with new people, I would, like, after a while, like, start inviting people home for dinner, cook for them, and that, like, really, really helped in creating these deeper bonds. So uh, most of my friendships today really started with a meal, and it's something I'd recommend to everyone. Well, you know I've got to ask, do you have like a uh, go-to dish for sort of breaking the ice? Ooh, well, depending on the season, but uh, my lasagna and tiramisu always seem to have like lots of success with all my dinner guests. <laughs> Outstanding, I'll probably be chasing you up for the recipe on that one. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Lara. Have a lovely day. Thanks, Jack. You too. that's the end of another episode if you're enjoying the podcast please do leave us ratings and reviews because it pushes us up the directories and makes it easier for other people to find us i've got a few talks coming up you can see the details on my events page on medium which is linked to from my twitter profile and you can find that at claire sudbury which is probably not spelt the way that you think there's no i in claire and sudbury is spelt E-R-Y at the end, the same as surgery or carvery. You can find Made Tech on Twitter at M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H and do come and say hello. We're very interested to hear your feedback and any suggestions you have for any content for future episodes or just to come and have a chat. Thank you to Rose, our editor, Gina Cady, our virtual assistant, Viv Andrews, our transcriber, Richard Murray for the music, there's a link in the description, and to the rest of our internal MedTech team, Kyle Chapman, Jack Harrison, Carson Robb, and Lara Plaga. Also in the description is a link for subscribing to our newsletter. We publish new episodes every fortnight on Tuesday mornings. Thank you for listening and goodbye.